I know that your summer, like my summer has gone super fast. I feel like July, we blinked and it was completely gone and gone and over with. We were able as a family, excuse me, I was able to go to Spain and uh, be able to tell people about Jesus. While we were over there, we met a young lady named Maria and her family wanted her to learn some English. And so by God's sovereign grace, she's been over in America right now. She's staying with the Atterbury family and she's here until September the 9th. Maria, wave your hand right there. There she is. That's Maria. Let's welcome her this morning. So, so Maria was one of our great translators for our American football camp and in God's grace and sovereignty brought her over here and she's with us for a little while so that she can learn English before she goes back to school in Spain. Um, I know that some of you were able to go to the beach this year and I would like you to say hello to my little friend. Take a look at this. This is my beach trip. How about that, huh? Okay, that's four and a half feet holding beach. Looks like that's ankle deep right there. Okay, this little ankle dweller. Someone, I sent a picture and it's called a bonnet shark. And Jerry says, that doesn't look like Red Riding Hood. And I said, I, I saw them flip it over. This one was caught off the shore and I saw his teeth and definitely looked like the big bad wolf. Okay, that didn't work, did it? Okay, well, thanks for the sympathy. Thanks for the sympathy. <laughs> Listen, we've got a lot this morning, a lot going on with a lot of different questions we're gonna, we're, we're, we're gonna answer. The issue and the task at hand is I was left up here all by myself. Brian and Jerry decided to take today off and I'm up here all by myself. And so we're gonna do this together, right? All right, let's do it, let's do it. So we've got lots of questions that we're gonna look at here. And what I wanna do is I, I wanna be able to make sure that through every single question, we see the sovereign God that we serve that we see him, we understand who he is, and we can see that, yes, there's some things that we don't understand, but at the end of the day, the things that we don't understand because we are finite, we can still trust him and who he is and what he wants out of us, and that is he wants us to glorify his name and live for him forever, and that we would spur each other on for love and good deeds. And so as we sort of navigate all of the questions, we will be, and I want to telegraph the past, we will be all over the place with some of our questions. Some of the questions that we have this morning is uh, start personal. For instance, what was your most embarrassing moment in ministry? And that is rather easy for me. Now, I don't mean to make light of this situation, but it's just what happened. I was asked to, to speak at a funeral for a lady who had been in a nursing home for a very long time. And it was actually the barber at the barber shop that I go to asked me to preach his mother's funeral. And I said, absolutely. I didn't know his mother, didn't even have any recollection of who she was. And so I said, tell me about your mother. And I got up there and I was preaching the service and I was like, Beatrice, um, Beatrice Honeycutt, you know, she was this and Beatrice Honeycutt was that. And I noticed on the front row, there's only 13 people there. The grandkids were dying laughing. And I'm like, okay, this is awkward. We're at a funeral and the grandkids are laughing. And so at that moment, I glanced down at my notes and I saw in big, bold letters, like big, bold letters, Beatrice Hancock. And I went, I have called her by the wrong name. Like four times. Like that is the most embarrassing moment of my entire life. My wife says, you're really going to tell people that? I'm like, hey, if you can't make fun of yourself, then hey, 
had fun. So that would be the most embarrassing moment of my ministry existence. And I hope that will continue to be the only embarrassing moments. I'm not really sure how you could go any lower than that. But um, at, at the end of the day here, one of the questions was, you know, when, when, were, you, uh, when were you baptized? Uh, when, when were you baptized? And I would say that before I talk about baptism, I love, I love being able to talk about just how I understood the gospel. I really came to have faith in Christ uh, in, a, in a church in upstate New York. Uh, it was called Faith Baptist Church. Pastor Doug Fombell was my pastor, but Mrs. Thayer was one of my children's ministry leaders. <clears throat> hum, uh, hum. One of my children's ministry leaders, dramatic pause. And so Mrs. Thayer uh, took me aside one Sunday morning, Easter Sunday, April 3rd, 1983. She shared with me the gospel. It was at that point in that day that I repented of my sins, placed my faith in Christ. And honestly, that is when I gave my life to Christ. And it was that day that my church had this great thing. We had a new Christians class where you would come and basically learn about what does it mean to follow Jesus? What's next? And then that would lead us into baptism. And so in April of 83, I was, bapt- I was, I was saved. And then in November, um, I, was, uh, I was baptized by Pastor Doug Fombell in upstate New York. And uh, just tremendous, tremendous church that believed, the Jesus, believed in Jesus and taught about a relationship with Christ. And I really have great, great, great memories. Good friends with Mrs. Thayer, even to this day. Call her on the phone every once in a while. And great to keep in touch with her. So grateful for her influence in my life. Uh, one of the questions was, at what age did you want to be a pastor? Dana would go, I am really wanting to hear this. Because her dad was a pastor, and when we got together, I wasn't going in that direction. And then I sort of like, hey, babe, we're going to go over here. And she was like, really? So basically, let me just tell you, I, I, uh, and, and when I was 17 years old, I was in uh, Connecticut at the time. I was living in Connecticut, moved from New York to Connecticut. We went down to Ridgecrest Conference Center to uh, summer camp. And it was there that the Lord really, really pressed on my heart. I remember standing on a bridge all by myself, looking at the campus center and just going, God, I will go, I will do, I will do anything for you. I am ready to do anything for you. And I got home and my conviction among that decision got a lot lighter. So I decided I wanted to be a sports broadcaster for ESPN. And I was like, I'm going to go to college and I'm going to be a sports broadcaster. I'll go to a Christian school. I'll love Jesus. I'll help out in the church and that kind of thing. And when I got there in the, fall, uh, the, the spring of 1991, I was uh, finishing my freshman year of college at Gardner University. And the Lord just really impressed upon my heart that, Matt, I want you to be in full-time ministry. And uh, just trust me, I'll, I'll show you what that looks like. And so um, in his sovereign plan in 1999, I became a pastor at Apex Baptist Church then over uh, I was a senior lead pastor over at the Creek Church and have been here and absolutely love it, love you guys, and of loving the opportunity to be a pastor. People ask me the question, what do you love? I just love the role of a pastor. I love shepherding people, and I just am so grateful, so grateful to be able to be here at Northwest and to be a pastor, the Care and Connections pastor here. And so that's how I sort of surrendered and moved into just being a pastor. Um, I did attend seminary, went to Southeastern Seminary after college, and uh, had a great time over there learning and theological training as well. But we have a lot of questions to dig deep into this morning. And remember, what I've said is some of our questions are all over the place. 
I will do the best that I can with you and your help to sort of connect them together and allow us to see Jesus in all of these and how we can be encouraged by Christ and pushed and stirred to love and good deeds, as the Bible says. So what is the first question? Well, let's start right out of the gate. What is the view of Christians about extraterrestrials? Awesome. So here's our first question for this morning. But before I do that, I have a little quiz for you. I'm going to put someone on the screen. I want you to tell me who it is. Who is this? Okay, what does E.T. say? Okay, E.T. phones home. Okay, we got another one for you. Who's that? Oh, there we, hey, there we go. If you're over 40, you know exactly who that is. If you were under, you're not quite sure who it is. You can Google that and you might need a little help with the next guy. Who's this? N- nanu, Nanu. Oh, Mork from work. Okay, and then we have one more. One more, who is this? There we go. And I, I learned in the first, first are, there star, are there Trekkies in the building right now this morning? Trackies. I heard they're trackers is what I was told. Someone yelled it out from the crowd. He was actually a guest visiting for the first time. He just yelled it out in the guests. They are trackers, not trackies. That's what I was told. But here's our fascination. We are fascinated with life in other planets. There are movies. There's the movie Independence Day with Will Smith. There is a classic. I mean, there are all kinds of movies. There are TV shows. We are fascinated. We are overwhelmed. We are very interested. And is there life beyond the planet Earth? Is there life beyond the planet Earth? Now, the question was, was written, what is the view of Christians about extraterrestrials? I will tell you this, that the prominent view among evangelical Christians is that there is no life outside of the earth. The prominent view would say that. I I think when we take a look at scripture, we take a look at scripture, I think we need to be really careful to say that there isn't something else out there as to be maybe so arrogant in that. I, I know that for me personally, I probably line myself over here on the prominent view that maybe this is it, that there is no such thing as life beyond the planet. But I think it would be safe for us to say, and I think it would be beneficial as we look through some verses, for us to say that there is, could possibly be something outside of this, but why would we have them? What is the purpose? Well, their purpose would be the same purpose that you have. Your purpose and my purpose is plain and simple. We are to glorify God. Plain and simple. Everybody wants to know. I'm an engineer. I'm a, I, I, I work in a church. I, I'm a stay-at-home mom. Whatever your profession is, your main purpose in life is to bring glory to God. And everything in creation is for his glory and for his glory alone. And, and let's, let's take a look at some of the scientific facts that you've taken a look. It, it is true that we have been able to, um, t- to go to every other planet. We've sent spacecraft to nearly every planet in our solar system. And we've not seen any, any form of life thus far. Um, we've been a, we've, what can be ruled out is the planet Mars because it's undetermined whether or not there could be some things in Mars. There have been several attempts the latest, I believe, being in 1997, also in 1976, there were some things that were gone that sent to Mars to get Martian sand. That, that is a true term, Martian sand, to investigate the microorganisms, whether there's, there's something living in the sand. It was actually proven that there is nothing in that sand that would denote life. There was nothing in that sand to denote life. Now, now if you're looking from a... From a real scientific standpoint, or if you're having someone who denies, in, denies the creation account, 
there is a great desire for there to be discovered life on other planets to prove the existence of evolution. To show that, yes, it is not this great God who created things. It is actually, actually, it is a great, it is, it is through an evolutionary process that we uh, have come into existence. I think when we take a look at the scripture, we, we have to be very careful at what the Bible does say and what the Bible doesn't say and be careful of venturing off too far. I know this. There are a lot of people that are really interested in life outside of the planet, outside of earth and what else is out there. Is it plant form? Is it um, water? Um, Recently, even this week, Bill sent me something yesterday um, around two o'clock in the afternoon and said, hey, they discovered this new planet that they really believe can sustain life. And, but as it is right now, there's nothing been confirmed that there is life outside of earth earth but who is to say that that is not a possibility what we do know is that we serve an amazing God we serve a a wonderful God an awesome God and he created the heavens and everything in them for his glory and that's the important thing and so when we get fascinated over is there or isn't there life outside of earth what I would ask us to do is Let's make sure that we're completely fascinated that he fashioned you and put you here on a planet called earth and the earth is not held up by anything but by his sovereign design. And let our fascination rest with knowing that he has created us with a purpose to glorify himself. He's placed us, us specifically, in this area for his good and his glory. In, in, in looking at that, that, the next question that, applies to this one as well is what does it say that God created why does it say that God created the earth but nothing about galaxies and other stuff and and there's several verses that we can take a look at and that um, I want you to take a look at Psalm 8 verses 1 through 3 Psalm 8 verses 1 through 3 you'll some of you might even break out in the song here in just a minute it says O Lord O Lord How majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. Verse three, look at this one. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place. We understand that there is a great God in heaven who fashioned this with himself, with, his, with, with, with a desire for him to be the center of our lives and be the center of the world. Psalm one, um, Deuteronomy chapter four, verse 19 says this. And be aware, lest you raise your eyes to heaven and when you see the sun and the moon and the stars and the host of heaven, you be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them things that the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole earth. And then Job 26, seven is a beautiful, beautiful um, piece of poetry that's written. And and, and the picture is this, is sometimes we have this idea that God's earth is being held up like, like a Christmas ornament on a Christmas tree. It's being held up. But when you take a look at science and you look at the scripture, 
you see that there is nothing holding up the earth. It is there in its place with the direct, um, with the direct degrees from the sun, from the moon, to be able to have life. If it was any closer, it would be too hot. If it was any further away, we would freeze. God sovereignly fashioned and placed the earth in such a place that you and I could live for the glory of his name. And I'm hoping that our fascination with life beyond this planet doesn't get us distracted from being fascinated with what he has and we know he has created. And that is us to be, to be born in the image, to be fashioned in the image of himself. Another, another question is this. Is a comet going to hit in September? Like I told you, we're, we're, over, we're, we're all over the place here right now. So, but it's, it's, hey, we want to be able to sit down and talk about this. Listen, there, there's a lot of talk about September. There's a lot of folks that follow the Jewish calendar and it's, a, it's an every seven year thing. So in 2011, we had 9-11. In 2008, we had the financial crisis. And so there's a lot of talk about something that might happen in September that revolves around God's judgment. So the question is, is, is a comet gonna hit in September? Maybe, maybe not. I'm, I'm not sure about that. But then what do we do about that? What do we do about September? Here's my encouragement to you. Live today like it was your last I remember my, this is what I learned in 1997 when, my, when my, my mentor named Randy Kilby, who was preaching a sermon, he stood up to preach in chapel at Southeastern Seminary and he stood up to speak and he says, I pray that as I get ready to speak that you would, you would pray for me that I would have the passion as if this is the first time I've ever spoken and that you would pray that I would have the urgency as if this is the last time I ever speak. On Tuesday, he died of a heart attack and is with Jesus at 40, was at, he was at 41 years old at that time. And so my encouragement to us as we look at, oh, what might happen in September? What will happen in September? Oh boy, do we need to go Y2K and start hiding stuff and eat, you know, storing things and those kinds of things? I would encourage us to trust in God. I, I would encourage us to be responsible. I would encourage us to say, listen, we have an urgent time, we have an urgent task, and let's get on with that and not be distracted by some of these things. But again, a, a, good, a good question. Another question that we have is, can a truly saved person lose their salvation? Can a truly saved person lose their salvation? I think the key word in that question is, is truly. Can a truly saved person lose their salvation? I preached at a youth camp. It's called Camp Willow Run. And in Camp Willow Run, I would preach there. And I preached there for five years. And there was a girl that came to camp. And a couple of times, she was there the weeks that I was preaching. And she came up one night, very emotional. It's a camp experience that happens. She comes up and she says, I got saved today. I asked Jesus to save me. And I said, that's great. Tell me about that. And she says, I have been a camper here for nine years. And she says, this is the ninth time I've done that. And I looked at her in the face and I said, stop. She looked at me like, I can't believe you just said that. I said, I want you to stop doing that. The God who saves us with his grace is the same one that keeps us with his grace. 
And what I want us to, to take a look at is, okay, can a saved, truly saved person lose their salvation? I think the real, the, one of the biggest things we must do is we must take a look at the word Christian. We were leaving Madrid and getting on a plane to come home a couple of weeks ago. And this guy from Holland was at our hotel. He gets on the bus. He looks at my friend Jeff and says, where are you from? Jeff says, United States, North Carolina. He says, you're Christian. And Jeff goes, um, well, I am, but let me define that for you. So a Christian is not someone who has walked an aisle, prayed a prayer, or come to church their entire life, or have 875 million of those buttons Brian always talks about. That's not what a Christian is. A Christian is someone who comes under the conviction of God's Holy Spirit, recognizes that they are a sinner, and realizes that Jesus is the only way, and says, I want that. And I'm going to get that by repent and repenting and believing in Jesus. That's a Christian. And we need to understand that when we say, hey, what is a Christian? Well, another word that we have to define is the type of life that God gives when we talk about John 3, 16. It's, it's eternal life. There's an adjective and the adjective is eternal is eternal, which means forever. It means never ending. It means you have it and you have it for good. That type of life. And that is the only life that God gives to us. He gives us that life. It's eternal life. I think that um, Romans 8, 38 through 39 is a great, a great way to share about eternal security and whether or not one can lose their salvation. Here it is what it says in uh, Romans 8, 38 through 39. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I love what it says in verse 28 of John 10. Listen, I don't want you to, list, I don't want you to miss this. Write this, focus on this. If you struggle with assurance or if you struggle with a doubt about your salvation, I pray that this verse would be something that you camp out in this week and that God would direct you to 1 John, the entire book of really understanding how God not only saves you, but he, is, he who began a good work in you will see it to, through to the day of completion, Philippians 1.6. What does it say in John 10, verse 28? The first phrase, it says, I give them eternal life. This is Jesus speaking. He's saying, I give them eternal life. It is not something you earn. It is not something you work for. It is something that God in his grace gives us. It is a gift. It is not something we work. It's not a bucket list that we check off. It's not things that we do. It is a submission through repentance and faith in Jesus. And so he says this, I give them eternal life. Then he goes on, and they will never perish. I'm gonna do a Dante for you right now. Dante was with us last week. I want everybody to say, never perish. I mean, that's what the text is saying to us right now as we, in regards to eternal security and losing our salvation. He says, I give them eternal life. And here's where it is. They will never perish. That is beautiful. That's unreal. And then he says this, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. No one will snatch them out of my hand. And then he says, hey, if you don't get that, if you don't understand that, then guess what? I'm going to say it for you again. Because you know what? Repetition is our best friend, right? 
I'm a dad of four kids. Repetition sometimes works more than others. Okay, but you just keep saying it and keep saying it. And then one day they go, they do what you said. And you're like, ah, they got it, right? So we take a look at verse 29. What does 29 say? I love this. Jesus says, my father who has given them to me is greater than all. And for those of you that are wrestling with assurance and wrestling with doubt, I want to direct you to the God of creation who fashioned and created this thing called salvation and made a way for not only you to be saved, but to stay saved. And it is that way, and it is that way by grace and grace alone. He keeps going and he says this, who has given them to me, keep going, is greater than all. And here's the last part. And no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hands. How many times did he say no one can snatch them out of the father's hands? He said it two times in two verses. That's important. It's also important to realize who is protecting us and that is God himself. That is God himself. So John 10, 29, it's, it's absolutely Jesus and the father have you and I, when we place our faith in Jesus, truly place our faith in Jesus, has us firmly rooted in him. Our salvation, we, we are grasped. And you're probably going, well, what about that kid who grew up in youth ministry who did this and went on a mission trip? And man, he, I saw him preach one time. I saw him do this. He, doesn't, he, he denounces Jesus. He's not even serving Jesus. Matter of fact, he is hostile to Jesus. What about him? First John 2.19 tells us about situations like that. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not of us. And if we're talking about that guy that you went to college with or that guy that you went to high school with or that kid in your former youth group, if they truly have a relationship with Jesus, then God's Holy Spirit is in them and waking them up and they will eventually come back. If they truly are a follower of Jesus, if they are not a follower of Jesus, it will be known, it will be plain that they were never saved to begin with. Never saved to begin with. If you struggle with assurance, then I want you to know a couple of things. I want you to know four things. Number one, I want you to know that God cannot lie. God cannot lie. I told this to this, little, this, this middle school girl several years ago. I tell it to anybody who's struggling. God cannot lie. Why do you say that, Matt? Because the Bible says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved, period. So we know right now, and I want you to know something right now, that if you call on the name of the Lord to be saved by through faith and repentance by his grace, he will save you. He will save you and he will keep you. By his grace. Number two, I want you to see that Jesus paid it all. Because sometimes what happens is we go through these things, well, well, am I saved or am I not saved? Well, I need to do this or I need to do that. Listen, Jesus paid for it all. He went on the cross. He had a very, very famous saying. He said, it is finished. Meaning your salvation, the payment for your salvation and the payment for your assurance had been paid for by his work on the cross by grace through faith in him. And then I would say that the third part of the Trinity, the third part of the Trinity is the Holy Spirit. I'll read you this verse. I don't believe I have this one on the screen. We know this, that he abides in us by the spirit which he has given us. 
By this, we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And the Holy Spirit is the great convincer and the issue of assurance of our salvation. And not only that, I would ask you, what is your posture? Are you pressed into the Lord? Forget, hey, I walked an aisle and I shook a pastor's hand and I said a prayer with my mom down by the bed. I, those are great. Sometimes those marks can be great and encouraging and be re refreshing to you because it is for me, but sometimes they might be a distraction. So I would ask you the question, are you living as a new creation in King Jesus right now? What is your posture? Are you leaning in and towards the Lord and the work of the Lord are you leaning away and running away? My daughter in Old Navy came up to me last week. We had a little bit of a disagreement. I was right. And she came up to me and she tapped me on the shoulder. She had a tear coming down her eye. And she said, I want to tell you that I was wrong. And I'm asking you to forgive me. Man, a tear started welling up in my eye. I'm like, oh, got something in my eye over here. I just looked at her in the face and I said, I am so overwhelmed and so grateful that I can see and witness the conviction of the Holy Spirit in your life. As a father, that overwhelms me and makes me grateful to God that you can witness that in your kids. 1 John 5.13 says this, these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God in order that you may know that you have eternal life. Let me ask you a question. What's two plus two? Are you 100% sure? Yes, you're 100% sure. If you live in India and China, if you live in Spain, if you live anywhere in the world, two plus two is always four. It's never anything else. And God, through his sovereignty and through his grace and through this great book that he gives us, is saying, I don't want you to guess. I want you to know. And these things I have written to you so that you may know. And when you know, you will be greatly effective in the work he set out for us. Um, wow. I have one more question. Oh, it's, it's an easy one. Will aborted babies be in heaven? Uh, what about infants when they die? Will aborted babies be in heaven? And I'm just gonna tell you right now, I'm gonna cover this question. We'll just have to deal with it, right? It's important for us to understand this question and for understand what it is. I think when we ask the question, will aborted babies be in heaven? We have to rest first and foremost with this. We must know and rest that there is a God in heaven who is good and will do good. Psalm 136 says, give thanks to the Lord for he is good for his steadfast love endures forever. And it's very possible that I could just stop right there and say, I trust God because he is good. Now, personally, I take it a little bit further in the answering this question. Um, I answer the question with, yes, I know that God is good. Number two, I also believe that we must never forget, regardless of our age, babies, adults, children, that we are all sinners and in need of a savior. I had a great controversy called the Augustinian versus Pelagius controversy where original sin came in. Did you become a sinner when you committed a sin or did you become a sinner because of the nature of sin? And the issue was, it was resolved that we are sinners because of our nature and because of our nature of sin, therefore we sin. 
And we must never forget, David said that he was conceived in sin, not that his parents were doing anything wrong. They were in a faithful relationship with each other. But he was conceived in sin, meaning that we have a sin nature from the time that we are born. And because we have a sin nature, we must have the grace of God that is the infant who doesn't make it, who's miscarried, or the aborted child, or maybe those that are affected in, that are severe autism, or have, have, have maybe um, Down syndrome, or things like that, that they're cognitively not able to understand. I call it a condition of accountability, not an age of accountability. A condition of accountability. So what happens? What happens to them? I, I truly believe that Romans 1 19 through 20 can answer the question and show us that I believe that babies, when they die, go to heaven. Why? The same reason you do. Because of the grace of God. Because of the grace of God. Let me show you in Romans chapter one, verse 19. For what can be known about God is plain to them. It's plain to you. But when we talk about these infants and these children, that's not plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. And for some reason, because of just general sin in the world, we have death and we have these babies that don't make it into the world. And so it's, they weren't able to see, they weren't able, it's not plain to them. They, they, they were not able to see the attributes of God. And because of that, because of that, I, I believe that these children, the, the, the miscarried baby or the stillborn baby doesn't go to heaven because it makes us feel better or because of sentimentalism, but I believe it, they go to heaven because of the way everybody gets to heaven and it's because of Jesus and his grace. It's because of Jesus and his grace. And as a pastor, I don't have any problem saying that babies go to heaven because of the grace of a loving and good God. And our last question that we have is, is um, how do I witness to a person who is not walking with Christ without coming off judgmental? How do I encourage my children and the Lord when the parents refuse to be part of a church family. Really quick, several years ago, I was called to go to the hospital to see a man named Wayne. Wayne was dying of pancreatic cancer and his wife wanted me to see him. I went to the hospital the first day and the room was filled with people, doctors and everything because the diagnosis was so bad. I then went in, I drove over the next day and as I was driving down Blue Ridge Road to go to Rex Hospital, I asked God, will you please make, it, make, it, make nobody be in the room when I get there? I don't want anybody to be in the room because I want to share the gospel with this man that does not know Jesus. And when I got there, nobody was there. And I sat down next to Wayne on his bed and he was cognitively there and we talked about a relationship with Jesus and he talked about his prognosis. We talked about what's next. And it was right there. I said, Wayne, is there any reason today why you wouldn't want to ask Jesus to come into your life that you would like to repent and believe in Jesus? About that time, the door flung open and I was like, oh God. And I looked over my shoulder and it was his wife. And she burst in and she was sobbing and she said, I was praying on my way over here that you would be standing here telling my husband about Jesus and that when I got there, he would say yes to him. And so she got on the other side of the bed and I got on one side of the bed and we held his hand and he said yes to Jesus. 
And the reason I'm answering the question in this way is because when we talk to family members and coworkers and things like that, we have to understand and be prepared that there is a timing issue in God's great scheme of things for us to be able to share and to talk. And how do we understand God's timing? We pray and we pray a lot. God, open up that door for me to be able to share. Help me not to burn the bridge for the other person who comes to share. But let me share clearly. Let me share boldly. I would say pray a lot. I would say understand timing. And I would say ask questions. Ask questions. If they ask something like, I don't believe in the gospel, I don't believe in the Bible, ask them, how did you get to that place? How did you get to that place? How did you come to know that? And when you ask that question, listen. And I would also say, make sure that whatever you do, you share boldly, but you share in love. Because the Bible says that it is the love of God that compels us. It is the love of God that compels us. Guys, my purpose today is to take all of these questions and help you to see the love that this great God in the world has for you. He's created you to have a purpose. He's created you to, have, um, to be loved and to love him. He made it very known through Jesus. If there's those of you that are struggling with assurance and doubt, man, I wanna be up here and talk to you about that. I would love to talk to you about that. But at the end of the day, there are some things that we can know. There are some things that we don't know. But let's make a decision not to let those things that we don't know or unsure of distract us from the things that we do know. That God has us positioned and placed for his glory. And let's serve with urgency the task at hand. I love being one of your pastors and I love serving at Northwest. It's an honor and a privilege for, privilege for us to come together every day and to talk about King Jesus and see him move each of us in a way where he is glorified in our families, in our lives. Let me pray with you. God, I love you and I thank you. Thank you for the people that are here today and the opportunity that we have to proclaim your name. I'm grateful to be able to serve here, to be able to call Northwest my church home and um, to have my family here, to raise my kids here. And so God, I pray that if there's anybody in here today that does not know you as, as their savior, that today would be a day that they would come to know you. I pray that they would not leave here knowing that two plus two is four, but they have no idea what would happen if they were to die or where they would go. Help us to be assured of our salvation. Help us to know that you are a great God and that you will do good. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>